Okay, this is our last class. What? Yeah. We're going next week. <laughs> what? Next week. We have till June 19. No, next week is our last. No. That's a way to say it. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. I'm not available next week, and then um, the girls are on a teal the week after. So I'd like to uh, I'd like to share with you one final idea. Psukim in this week's parsha, a psukim that we're all familiar with, because they're psukim that we read every time we take out the Torah and every time we put back the Torah. The psukim of Vayivan Saaron and Uvnu Chayomar. And so, because we take out the Torah twice a week on Mondays and Thursdays, and then again on Shabbos, and on fast days, so these are psukim that are familiar to us. And when we have psukim that are familiar to us, that means that somehow these psukim are, not to say that any pasuk is more integral than any other pasuk, but that there's something about these psukim, a, a fundamental lesson that that needs to be constantly reminded to every single Jew to awaken these lessons from within their heart. And so the question is, what's the, what's the inner message of these psukim that we need to constantly be reminded of them? That's our first question for the night. The second question is, as we all know, that these psukim don't belong in Parshas Baalosra, but they were there to break up Two not such good things that happened in Klal Yisrael. There was the Misononim, Klal Yisrael was complaining. They were running away from our Sinai. And so these Psukim, which really, as we'll soon see, should have been much earlier in the Torah, were placed here in order to create a break. But obviously, if they were placed here, they were meant to be here. So what's the connection between the Psukim of Vayihi ben Salaron and Parshas Bahalosa? Why specifically this Parsha, for some reason it was critical that it be integrated into Parsha's Baalosa. What's the connection, the thematic, the thematic connection between Baalosa and Vayibin Saro? And finally, we know that these psukim are bookended in the Torah in a strange way. Uh, it's called the inverted nuns, the nunim afuchim. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. So, everyone asks the question, you know, what are the nunim afuchim doing here? And the Gemara already points out that this is a, considered a separate sefer. This is its own separate sefer in the Torah. But the question that we're going to ask today is, why specifically the Nun? Of all the letters in the Torah, why specifically the Nun? And why is the Nun inverted? Why was that the simon, an inverted Nun? Why a Nun and why an inverted Nun? So we have in front of us four questions. The first question is, why is it so important? The Vayibin Saaron is something that's a constant reminder to Klal Yisrael, number one. Number two, what's, it, what's the thematic connection between Parshas Bahaloscha and these Psukim? Why the Nun, specifically? Why not any letter? Why not an Aleph? And why specifically an inverted Nun, a backwards Nun? Okay. Nun means a lot of things. And in order to understand the inner messages of these Psukim, we first need to understand the nature of a Nun. Rabbeinu B'chaya says that the reason it says a nun here is because really 
these psukim should have been 50 paragraphs earlier. The gematria of Nun is 50, so it's a simon. These, should have, these psukim should have been 50 paragraphs earlier. But as we all know, 50 also means to comprehend that which is incomprehensible. Within the world of thought, there's 49 gates of understanding that a human being is given to understand. But of course, there's a dimension of understanding that we can understand without understanding how we understand it. This is called the 50th Sharebina. This is why we just celebrated Shavuos. This is why we're given the Torah on the 50th day. Ultimately, a person can come to the highest levels of comprehension, but the highest levels of comprehension in the world of logic will ultimately fall short. And the reason that is, is because logic itself is a construct. As logic itself is something that was created. So logic, in a certain way, is limited by its creation. As just if you think about it, right? We can measure the measurable, but somebody created the measurable, which means there's something that's always going to be beyond that which is measurable. We know this. We instinctively know this. We know that it's very possible that artificial intelligence, and, and if you do this with ChatGPT, I've done it a bunch of times already. If you ask ChatGPT to write you a poem, it'll write one in like three seconds, and it's, it's exceptionally incredible. And it probably follows all of the rules of poetry, but there's one thing that it's lacking. It's lacking a certain soulfulness that I don't know if artificial intelligence will ever be able to have. There's something that's beyond that which is measurable. Every game has a, an aspect to it which is beyond the game itself. And we do ourselves a, a tremendous disservice sometimes by only describing a game by what it is. Right? It's like, well, you have a lot of rabbis out there, and I'm sure you've heard something like this. Maybe it's not as prevalent for the girls as it is for the boys, but just come with me on the journey for a moment. You know, rabbis love to make fun of sports to boys. They're like, what are you doing? You're just putting a ball in a hole. Well, no, that's not what you're doing. I mean, that's physically the activity that you're doing, but by diminishing the value of the game, right, which is always higher than the game itself, like, you're being silly. Like, of course you're putting a ball in a hole, but, but really that's not what it's about. Like, if you had to say what was basketball about, you would say something about sportsmanship, you would say something about competition, you would say something about camaraderie, right? you would say something about overcoming resilience, grit, Right? All the things that make sports great. I remember I had a conversation with a Rebbe of mine many years ago when I was in 10th grade. And the Rebbe said, um, would you pay to watch a group of grown men wear pajamas and throw rocks into toilets that are 10 feet high? And I said, well, clearly I would. And not only that, it seems that hundreds of millions of people would and they would spend billions of dollars on it. So clearly I'm right and you're wrong. And he looked at me as if I was an idiot and he's like, do you think that's intelligent? And I was like, well, I would never describe the game of basketball as, you know, pajama-clad wearing men, you know, wearing, you know, throwing rocks into toilets. But yes, if that was a sport, then there would certainly be some value to it, obviously, right? And what this Rebbe was doing, his point was, though I think he was making his point in a silly way, his, his point was, if you're going to invest your energy into something, do something that's more important than just this, right? But... What that Rebbe failed to recognize is there's a reason that people are drawn to sports. Right? Sports means something beyond putting a ball in a hole. There's, there's something that's Moshech a person, that draws a person in. It's the same thing, Kaviachal, in a relationship. Right? It's like, again, I hesitate to use this example. If we could, if we could try to be mature about this. right? 
when we speak about, let's say, Sharmanagiyah, right? And he's like, <coughs> like, there's always that line when touch means something more than touch. Right? And physically, you could just describe it as, I don't know, protoplasm is touching other protoplasm. That's a very silly way of describing touch. There's a reason that we're Sharmanagiyah. The reason is because touch has a transcendent meaning, one that you can't measure. Right? That's why it could be very uncomfortable for us, very uncomfortable for us. If you go to, like, check out somewhere and somebody hands you change or, mm-hmm. or, and, and they linger, and that linger doesn't have to be for more than a second, and you walk away and you're like, that was creepy, <laughs> right? And the reason is because even though it's just one second of touch, why can't somebody just go, it was one second of touch? It's protoplasm touching protoplasm for literally a second. Well, the answer is no, because there's something called meaning, and meaning is invested in behaviors and activities, right? So there's always that which we can understand, that which we can measure in the world, and then there's that which is beyond measure. Actually, the things that are really important in life are always the things that are beyond measure. The things that you can measure are never really the important things. There's always the things that just tell you about the really important things. Like, it's not really important, please don't misquote me, which means you'll misquote me, but when you do, just remember that I said, please don't misquote me. It's not really important to buy a home. It's not really important. It's not a really important thing to do. There's things that are really important that happen in your house. That's what makes a house meaningful, right? But the house itself, just there's a pile of bricks in this particular place, is not what's meaningful. In fact, I can prove it to you because when most people buy a home, right, what do they say? They don't tell you the brick count of the home, right? That's what, that's what realtors do, right? When, when someone's a real estate agent, right, they'll tell you, like, there's beautiful wood flooring here. Now, do you really care about the wood flooring? I mean, you might care a little bit about it. Some of you might more than others, depending on where you're from. But the, there's a, if you're a wife, if you're a mother looking at a home, what do you think when you walk into this room? You think you look into that room and you go, it'd be great for the kids to play in there while I'm making Shabbos because I can keep an eye on them, Right? That's not the measurable stuff, that's the immeasurable stuff, right? You, you walk into a dining room, right, and you see that that dining room is very narrow, and you're like, I don't think we'd feel comfortable having a Shabbos table with guests at this dining room. And you go, I don't think that's our house for us, right? Now, you could, you know, you could have all the amenities in the world in that house, you could have the most beautiful brand new windows, and, and yet you might find yourself taking a house that's not as nice, but because it suits your home better, right? That's the nun sharibina, it's not within... The measurable is within the immeasurable, right? A great realtor will, be, will know what you're really looking for, and she'll sell you that. So there's always the Torah and its laws. The laws of the Torah are the 49 gates of understanding. Those are things you can wrap your human head around. But then there's the understanding that all of this is towards something greater than yourself, and that's called the nun sharebina. There's another aspect to the word nun that I wanted to... And all these will come together eventually, so please just bear with me. There's another aspect to the, to the letter nun here that's very important. The letter nun in Aramaic means a fish. Did you know that? Nun means a fish. If you look at what Claudius was complaining about, they were complaining about the mun, but listen to the words that they say. Zacharnu es hadaga asher nocho chinam. We remember the fish that we ate in Mitzrayim for free. This is what they complained about. If you look in the Targum Unkelis, under the word fish, he, dis- he translates the word fish as nunaya, from the letter nun. 
Nun means, in Aramaic, it means fish. What's the connection between the Nun Shari Bina and the concept of fish? What's that, what's that interconnection? Why is it that fish seem to be part of this story? That there's something, something about getting free fish in Mitzrayim, and now Klal finds themselves in the Midbar, and they're not getting those fish anymore. In addition, the word Nun also stands for Nephila. It means to fall. And an inverted nun would mean what? If nephila means to fall, then an inverted nun would mean to arise from that fall. In fact, when you put the two on a graphic design level, when you put two inverted nuns together, what you get is a memsofit. You get the, uh, you know what a memsofit looks like? You get the box. And the, I'm sorry, you get a samach rather, I apologize. So what is the, uh, what is the letters, nun, same, same letter basically, what does nun and samach stand for? So Nun and Samach stands for Nase. And if you think about what that means, the word Nase, what is a miracle? Let's unpack the word miracle for a second. Nun stands for Nefila, and what's the Samach stand for? Anyone want to guess? That's the, that's the gematria of it. Samach means to be Somech, to rely upon. And what a miracle is, and this is very important, what a miracle is, is a miracle is that which you can rely upon when you've fallen. That's what every miracle is, right? Every miracle. We're at Kriyas Yamsuf, we're in a tremendous state of nefila. What does HaKadosh Baruch Hu do? A nace. He lifts us up. We're so if we can rely on HaKadosh Baruch Hu from that place. The two nuns obviously represent, on some level, the idea of, uh, the idea of Nigla and Nistar, Nasa and Nishma. In general, the, uh, as we said before, the nun can also represent the Mem Sofit. And the Mem Sofi represents the 40 days of Torah, 40 days, 40 nights, and Moshe Rabbeinu receives the Torah. But really what I want to say to you is as follows. If you put all these things together, this is what it sounds like. And it's a lot of information. If you put all these things together, it sounds as follows. Every one of us is trying to reach that which is beyond our capacity to reach. And we think that we have to be headed upwards in order to get to the Nun Shari Bina. And I'm going to teach you a secret tonight. It's a, it's a chesidish secret. It's a beautiful secret. The secret is that you cannot reach the Nun Shari Bina if you go up. You can only reach it if you go down. It's not possible to reach that Nun Shari Bina if you're going up. It's only possible to reach if you're going down. But when you go down, what you have to be willing to do is you have to be willing to swim against the current. I'll explain what I mean. Imagine you have a couple. The goal of this, we'll call it this, uh, this new husband and wife. You know these uh, new couples, you've seen them? They're very cute, no? Like, ugh, that type of cute, you know what I mean? And everything is good, and they're just going up and up and up and up. The thing is, they won't reach intimacy that way. Intimacy means oneness. That's the nun sharibina in this case, to reach beyond themselves to be a part of something larger. In order for that to happen, there must be, and there always is, stress in the relationship. Every single relationship has tension. Marriage has designed tension. In fact, what do we say about marriage? We say that you girls are an azer kenegdo. What does it mean to be an azer kenegdo? You're a helper by being opposed, because men and women are so exceptionally different, what happens if you put two people together in a marriage? Inevitably, the friction 
is present. And what happens when that friction is present? Well, there's two roads, and this is what I really want to prepare you for. One road is to opt out. It's a road. And people take that road all the time. Opt out doesn't necessarily mean that you get divorced. Opt out means you just don't engage. There are couples that can live together for 20, 30, 40, 50 years, and they're totally minutak from each other. They don't have any fights, but they don't also, they don't have any tension. In other words, they're not working towards each other anymore. They've just disengaged. They have to make some level of family decisions to keep the home moving, but do they have a lifetime together? No, they just spent their lives together. That's possible to do, and people do it all the time because it's so hard to relate to somebody that doesn't speak your language. In, in fact, I'll share with you, this week in yeshiva, the boys asked me if we could do, like, a mock conversation between a guy and a girl. And like, what are you girls looking for? And I want you to know, these boys are like, no way, that's not what they're looking for, Rebbe. I'm like, trust me, it's what they're looking for. And they're like, I just want to solve this problem for her. And I'm like, she doesn't want to hear your solutions. She's not interested in your solutions. And one of the guys actually had a fair point. I don't know the answer to this question. He was like, why do we have to learn to speak their language and they don't have to learn to speak ours? It's a decent question, by the way. I'm not sure the answer to that question. But I know that we have to learn to speak your language. I know that's the way it works. The alternative is to opt in. Opting in can come with a tremendous amount of pain. I'll give you an example of the pain that could come. I say this not to scare you, I say this because there's a tremendous opportunity that's buried within this pain. One of the Majrichim, I had the Majrichim over my house yesterday for a barbecue, one of the Majrichim said that he heard from one of the Rebbeim in the yeshiva that marriage can be exceptionally lonely. And I said, it's true, it can be. And he goes, well, why is that? So I said, well, let's unpack this. You've dedicated your life to somebody, You've married them, you work every day for them, and now in a state of separation, in a state of friction, the feeling you might have is the most important person in the world to me right now is not with me. That's not the same thing as just not having somebody next to you. That's the absence of having somebody next to you. Do you hear the difference? That's a very lonely feeling. Now, you have two choices in that lonely feeling. Number one is to go, okay, forget it. I don't want to ever feel this lonely again, so I'll just disengage. I don't need him. I can have friends. And you can go to the park, and there are plenty of women in the park. I've, uh, in Ramape Chemish, there's like, that's where you go. Like, it seems to me like, I, I don't want to say I'm not invited or allowed there, but I don't feel very invited or allowed there. <laughs> I mean, I could walk through on my way to Myriv, but like, that's the extent of it, right? It's, seems that they have their place, and maybe we have our place, and you know, men go to shul and women go to the park. But it seems to me that it's possible that a person could probably get everything they need from shul or everything they need from the park. And that's a, that's a way. You can take that route. Or alternatively, you can ask yourself, well, what does belonging mean? And how do I create authentic belonging within myself? And what did I do to create this lack of belonging in this relationship? What can I take ownership over? And how can I come back and refind this person even when I've already hurt them and they've already hurt me? Now, the growth opportunity there is enormous. A couple who says, uh, I feel tremendously distant from you right now, 
but we're committed to finding each other is going to have to do a massive amount of heavy lifting. There's a lot to work on. And when they do that work, that's going to mean that they have to be honest with themselves. It means they're going to have to be authentically aware of the things that they're feeling and the things that are going on inside for themselves. They're going to draw upon levels of faith and courage that they never thought they had. And they're going to become fundamentally different people than the people they were before. And we see it all the time. We see it all the time. I very often marvel at the choices that you girls make when you marry a husband. And if you marry one of the boys that I know from yeshiva, sometimes I wonder to myself, what was that girl thinking? (laughs) He's a great guy, but I once saw him throw a couch off of a third floor just to see if it would break. (laughs) I'm not saying that actually happened, but it definitely did. (laughs) And when it didn't break, he then thought of another question. Will this couch burn? (laughs) And it did. And somebody married that man. And when I heard that he was engaged, I remember thinking to myself... I'm curious what that girl saw in him. <laughs> like, was he on a date? And he said, yeah, we like pulled the couch up to the third floor and it was a narrow staircase, but we really pushed it through and then we threw it off, but nothing happened, so we decided to burn it. I'm wondering what the girl's reaction is on the date. Is she going like, he's so fun. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> like, what about that decision? Yes. You know what I'm saying? Clearly, there are people like that, apparently. <laughs> and I'm thinking that a girl is thinking to herself like, Something about that story made you think this would be a good partner, right? <laughs> I think he's the fun one, like he's mm-hmm. the clown. Yeah, you have whatever stories you tell yourself. <laughs> but then you see that guy, you know, and he's 21, 22, and then five years later, you know, he's 26, 27, and you've met a completely different person. And it's like all of a sudden you're like, you bump into him and like, he's, he's holding himself differently. He's, he's changed. And... It's not a mystery. You know what it is. It's because he's married. And marriage changes you if you're good at it, right? Because, or especially if you're not good at it, right? Because you have, to, you have to do really hard things and you go against the stream. And when you go against the stream and you like say, okay, I'm not just going to be male and I'm not just going to be female, but I'm going to be a, a husband and I'm going to be a wife. Those are different than just being male and female. Male and female don't get along very well, but husband and wife have a shot. But it means humbling yourself, it means drawing from faith, authenticity, integrity, all of the honor, dignity, all the things that go into making a marriage great. You have to do that. And so you see very rapidly that it starts to change people. Marriage is just one example, but there are many. We see boys who come back every year. I don't see the girls really who do this because I'm not really part of that world so much. But we see boys every year who come back from Camp Ask. And they're changed. They're changed people. What was it? Well... A lot of these boys never had to do hard things in their life. You know, if you grow up in certain places or towns and, and you're driven everywhere, right, and you've never had to take care of anybody else. In fact, you were taking care of your entire life. Like, I, I worked growing up. My parents weren't sending me to camp when I was in high school. You're in high school. You're working. And when you go to Israel, my parents didn't give me a credit card. They said, and they had the money. They said, you're spending your own money. It was, it was a life lesson that they taught us. If you've never done that, you have a limited, stunted amount of growth. And imagine you go to Camp Ask, and now you have to take care of people with special needs. And some of these people are really hard to take care of. It means sometimes doing really, I'll clean it up, 
which is what they're doing, uh, really <laughs> menial tasks, right? And it's things like a guy said, I never thought I could do it. One boy in yeshiva who told me this year, after working in Camp Pasch, I've had every single type of fluid from the human body on me. <laughs> He's like, that's, that's, a, that's but, but you should know, this boy is a gem. He's a gem. Truth is, he was a gem beforehand. But he's, a, he's, a, he's clearly a person who's grown tremendously. Friction creates growth. You should know that parents love to hate the generation that they raised. No? Well, that's so true. Right? Because, and really, a lot of it's our own stuff. Right? But we love, because we're always like, oh, in my generation. Well, you raised this generation, so what are you complaining about? Right? My daughters do this. Well, you're the one that raised them, right? And, the, and, and we know this, right? Hard times make great people. Great people make easy times. Easy times make soft people, and soft people make hard times. We know that that's the way it goes, right? So if you raise people that they don't have a life of, of friction, then you won't have a life of growth. Was, I, even thinking about my grandmother describing what the Depression was like, or the post-Depression era, like, she lived through hard things. So... I don't know how afraid she was of life because I don't know what else life could have thrown at her. She wasn't a Holocaust survivor. My grandmother lived in America. She was born in America. But, you know, what, what must it have been like to see people washing up on the shores post-Holocaust? She lived through that era. She saw the state of Israel be born. She saw 1967. We come to Tomer Devora and we're like, it's hard. And I'm not saying it's not, but it's also not. <laughs> It's hard. I don't want to minimize. I don't want to invalidate. Somebody's going to walk out of here and go, Berg invalidated my experience and he triggered me and then I'll be canceled because you had a feeling, right? <laughs> the crazy world that we live in. But also, you girls have been served on a silver platter. Like literally, you've been served on a silver platter. And it doesn't mean that it was the best or the nicest conditions always. And, and, it's, and it's our fault. And then we turn around and we go, I don't understand why are these girls not growing. Well, what, did you, what did you give them that was hard? Was, I grew. I, I didn't know it at the time. But when I was in Mavasera 25 years ago, they had apartments. And the boys stayed in the apartments. And my apartment was the kitchen. When I say the kitchen, I don't mean like a regular American kitchen. I mean an Israeli kitchen. A kitchen that was so small that the door was a sliding door because there wasn't room to open the door. And me and one other guy, Aaron Schoenfeld, lived in that kitchen. There was a bunk bed up against the window, which meant the window didn't open, because the window opened inward. And there was a heating unit, and there was no air conditioning, and we were slept on Israeli mattresses, and we had two closets that were maybe this big for each of us. And that was the room. That was the whole room. There was a small table. That was the whole room. And we were fancy because we found a rug outside and brought it in. Our room had a rug. And then we were fancy. And then, and then what happened? And then what happened? One of the yeshivas built a beautiful campus and got American mattresses and central air. And everybody said, well, I want to go there. And so then every yeshiva needed to do it. And then we turn around now and we're like, I don't understand why the boys aren't growing the way they should. And we're like, man, because you took away all the resistance. Resistance creates growth. Fish swim upstream. That's how they return to their source. It's where they lay their eggs. It's how they have children. Jews are fish. That's the bracha that we got. From Lashon of Dag. We're fish. The bracha that we have is that we're fish. We go against the tides. You know, we're really a religion, and we don't talk about this enough. We're a rebellious religion. Avram Avinu is described as an ivri. 
You know, today we've made it that in order to be a part of our religion, you need to not be rebellious. But it's hard for Jews not to be rebellious, which is why the rebellious children are often the best. They're the ones that change the status quo. And if you can harness that energy and you can put them in the right direction, those kids will change the world. And they are. Because we've always been, and it's in our genetic code, that when the world says we're going this way, Jews go, nah, we're going that way. And you think about it, you're like, in today, in modern times, maybe it's not as easy to see, but that's because of the changes that we've made to the world. Like in, a, in an era of child sacrifice, Jews got up and said, that's ridiculous. Don't ever sacrifice your children. That's not where we make our sacrifices. Right? In an era of idolatry, Jews pointed to the oneness of the universe, which is something that science is still trying to comprehend. And science believes that there is a oneness of the universe, though so they can't put their finger on it. And we continuously have done this throughout time. And in an era where, again, we don't understand what the word barbarian means. When's the last time you ran into a barbarian? And I'm not talking about Israelis pushing on a bus. That's not barbaric. That's cultural. And I'm not saying it's right. It's just a different culture. But when's the last time you saw a barbarian? When's the last time you saw someone walk around with a club? The world is a civilized place today, and we were an instrumental part of making it a civilized place. Here's the catch. If you want to reach the Nun Sharibina, you have to be willing to fall and then swim against the current. That's the only way to get to the highest levels. There's no such thing as climbing the ladder and not falling down. Shevi Yipal HaTzadik Vikam is a promise. It means if you want to be that tzaddik, of course you have to be in a state of nefila which is what the Nun stands for. Remember, the Nun stands for Nefilah. But Torah, which is from the 50th Sharebina, the Nasev Anishma, the Nigla Venistar, those two Nuns, it only happens B'derech Nes. Nes means I've fallen, but I'm learning to put my trust in God. And I want to spend a minute on this because this is a very important thing. Since this is the last time that I'm going to be teaching you, I want to share with you that when you fall, and you will, because you're supposed to. That's where faith is built. When things are not going right in your life, and they won't. And it won't, God willing, it'll be more good than bad. But you, there are people that have trouble with their children, teenage daughters. I know that all of you think that you weren't, but I want you to know that some of you, and probably all of you, at some point in your life, your mother said, I wonder what's going to be with this one. At some point. You're not bad. But they wondered about you. Because you were all swimming in your own path, and parents look at a 15, 16-year-old girl and go, okay, deep breath, right? And there's, 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 there's faith that we find. We, we reach out in prayer to HaKadosh Baruch Hu and we say, take care of that which I can't necessarily take care of on my own. And we grow from that, from letting go and letting God. That's how we develop as people. We start to understand the difference between influence and control. Here's a place where I can influence but I can't control this. And we learn to let go. It's the same thing in our marriages. It's the same thing in our jobs. It's the same thing in our communities. There are people and they're Tasmanian devils of chaos. There are people that are so frightened in life. And they're in such a state of nefila. And I don't blame them at all. I too, in my life, have done this. That when we get into a state of nefila, maybe we got sick. Or maybe a family member got sick. And we so badly want to control that we start spinning. And we start putting people in places. And we push this person here and push this person, this, this person there. And then we get angry at the people that won't do exactly what we want. And there's no sense of serenity. And the thing is that the lack of serenity right now in the world is literally killing people. It's literally killing people. If you look at the, if you look at the diseases that are prevalent in the world today, 
These are stress-oriented diseases. Rheumatoid arthritis, multiple sclerosis. The things that we treat with steroids, steroids are stress hormones. There's so much stress in the world today and there's not nearly enough serenity because we lost, not here, Baruch Hashem in Yerushalayim, but in many places in the world, we've, we've lost God. We've really lost God. And what happens to a society that loses God? What happens to a society that doesn't know how to say, I can let go and let God. I can give my faith to something larger than myself. Depression, anxiety, substance abuse, suicide, stress is through the roof. The reason that the Lubavitcher Rebbe, Zechus was into having a moment of prayer, a non-denominational prayer, a moment of silence, just so that people could connect to higher power, is because he was concerned for the world at large. What happens to a world at large that does not have what to be somech on when they're no fell? Because the state of the world is always going to have some aspect of the feel to it. So when you fall and you will, because only in Mitzrayim are the, do the fish come free. That's why Klal Yisrael was complaining, in Mitzrayim we got our fish for free. What were they, were they obsessed with sushi? It's like, this wasn't yet the five towns. They're like, yeah, the fish came to my door. Yeah, you know why? Because the Nile River overflows, and in Mitzrayim, literally, the fish were everywhere. It was free fish. It was amazing. But it's not a Jewish concept. A Jew doesn't sit there and go, like, this should come easy. Why is it so hard? You have people that they're railing in their life. Why is it so hard? Why is it so hard? Why did this happen to me? You know, that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a painful question to ask. And of course, anybody who asks that question, those emotions deserve to be validated, felt, held, all the good things. But also, that's an unanswerable question. Nobody knows why anything happens to anyone, but now that you're in a state of friction, you have two choices. You can either get out or you can jump in. If you jump in, you stay, you grow, you climb, you reach that nun sharibina. If you let go, you're out. And, and, and there's the only thing that I can guarantee you is that you're not living in Mitzrayim. And if you are living in Mitzrayim, I hate to see what you're going to look like in 20 years without all the growth. And there are going to be girls that leave this room and in a short amount of time, and don't say amen to this because it's not necessarily always a bracha. There are going to be girls in a short amount of time, yeah, this girl got engaged, that girl got engaged, and it'll be like the easiest thing in the world for them. And there are going to be girls that it's harder for. And there are going to be girls that are like feeling like they're in a state of nephilah and they're feeling the rejection. And they're wondering and they're hoping and they're waiting. And when will it be my turn? And who's advocating for me? And why didn't it work out? And why haven't I gotten a date? There's a tremendous amount of pain and chaos in there. And the opportunity is to say, okay, I can't control this. Right? These fish didn't come free for me. I'm going to have to work towards this. So what am I doing in this? Time? Am I using this as an opportunity to grow? to invest in myself, to become the person that I want to become? Or am I just trying to control this and getting angry at the world? And I want to share with you that getting angry at the world is not a very attractive place to be. Nobody wants to be with people that are angry at the world. And it forces, and you see it. You see these girls that are going through that pain of being single, it, the, the ones that really work on themselves, the growth is crazy. And Be'ez Hashem, when they do find the right one, God willing, the marriage, it has a certain maturity to it because they're not just kids who got it figured out right away and you know there are people that they like there are people again they have this I don't mean to pick on any specific block or person here and I'm going to say something and I don't want you to blow it out of proportion there are people that walk around Yushalayim with their thousand dollar bugaboo strollers 
or I didn't even know I heard the bugaboo stroller is not even fancy anymore. But there are, there are strollers that like, like you can, like, they're like micro machines. You can put them in your pocket when you're done with them, you know, I'm like, and there are people that are walking around and they're eating all day at that bagel store in that block, you know what I'm talking about, and they're, and they're waiting and there's, you know, they're waiting till, you know, 1.30 when their husband comes home and what are you doing in the morning? We hang out, we, get a, we go to Katsafe, we have like, a, it's a certain lifestyle, and it seems to be very easy, and it seems to be very appealing. I want you to know there are couples that are not that way. There are couples that are like, we're going to do this, and we're going to work through it, and I don't know how it's going to work out, but we're going to trust in God, and we're going to put ourselves out there, and we're going to create the vessel, and we're going to see. And I want you to know, it may not be as easy, but it is better. And it's not, again, I'm not here to say to you, like, oh, if you're going through it, it's really better. I don't, I'm not telling this to you when it's happening. If it came to me when it's happening, you said, Rebbe, I'm in a hard time. All I would do is sit and listen. I'm telling it to you now, so that you have the hashkafa. You know, that guy in Kylo, who's not necessarily getting supported, who learns morning Seder and afternoon Seder, but night Seder, he's tutoring Bachram on the side. Or he's learning in a, in, you know, in a yeshiva that pays a little bit more. So you'll say, but that guy who's getting totally supported, he's able to learn, he's going to become a Mitsuyan. I want you to know that's not my experience. The guy who's able to learn three starm and he's totally supported and he has no daigas on his head, it's not my experience that that guy becomes the biggest tamachachim. It's actually my experience that that guy becomes the biggest tamachachim. The guy who had to schwitz for it. The, the, the sacrifice builds you. The relationship that a couple has when everything is smooth sailing is not nearly as great as the relationship can be when a couple needs to find each other in the darkness. Klal Yisrael is a, we're a nation, we're a desert nation. That's what we are. We're a desert nation. Remember when you went to Eilat? Remember when you were driving on the bus down south and for like an hour there was nothing? There was just mm-hmm. desert? Mm-hmm. And it's just like a straight path, right? Mm-hmm. It's, not like you're, it's not like you're on those windy mountains. You're just on a straight path of desert until you hit a lot. That's what this country looked like. This country, this entire country, 80 years ago, looked like that stretch of land. And today, today Yerushalayim is beautiful. Today Eretz Yisrael is, is well-traveled. I was talking to an old Israeli today, and he said to me, do you know that it used to be that the only way to get to, from Tel Aviv to Yerushalayim was through the back roads of Beit Shemesh? And now, beautiful highways, gorgeous buildings going up all the time, businesses thriving here, the land is thriving here. You could see the prophecies coming true. It's an amazing thing to see. It happened because of a group of people from left to right and everything in between. It happened because of a group of people that said, we're not afraid of hard work and we're not afraid to do hard things. As we, uh, as we finish this year, before I say thank you, I just want to remind you that this year, whatever challenges came up, I'm not saying they weren't real, they were real. But I hope, I hope that this year in some sense has prepared you to do the next hard thing. Like, like for some of you, it was probably easy to get on the plane and come here. And for some of you, it was probably not so easy. I'll share with you just in the spirit of vulnerability. I, I was, um, when I went to Mavassar 25 years ago, we landed... I came with friends. I wasn't really so nervous. But we were on the bus going back from the airport to Mavasaret, and I started getting nauseous. 
And I said to myself, do not throw up. Because then for the rest of the year, you're the guy that puked on the bus. <laughs> and I, I was like, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like, you don't want to be the, like, do you know Berg? Yeah, that's like the guy who, well, you know that guy? Like, you don't want to be that guy. But you learn something. You learn something of like, okay, like, I'm in an environment and I have to prepare myself and I have to be a person and I have to, like, take care of myself and do my laundry and... and and find a place to go for Shabbos, and, and maybe cook for Shabbos, maybe the boys are going somewhere for Shabbos, and, and it builds you. <coughs> now you're leaving. And you're probably not going into the Midbar, because I'm sure you have, and I hope you have, support systems that you're going back to. But life, in a certain sense, is that Midbar. Life is not Egypt. The fish don't show up for you at your doorstep. But be a person who's Somech Noflin. Be a person who's shooting for Nun Shari Bina. Be a person who's reaching for the immeasurable things in life. Those are the really good things. Be a person who knows that there's a Torah to every one of these moments. It's why we have to constantly remind ourselves, Monday, Thursday, fast days, Shabbos. Anytime we're traveling, we're in the Midbar. When we stay, we don't say it. When we stay, we're like, okay, we're here. But anytime we're in motion, we're in the Midbar. There's vulnerability, there's nefila. And I have no doubt that, uh, that you will. I have no doubt that in 10, 20, 30, 40 years' time, I have no doubt that you will be either in your shalim or return to your shalim from wherever you're living, and perhaps you will find yourself driving by Sanhedrin or Chavet, and perhaps you'll turn to your son or daughter in the car and go, right down there, I went to Tomer Devorah, and that was another step Maybe a beginning step, maybe an early step, and what will God willing be a very beautiful journey. And I want you to know that it's a privilege to teach her. It's a it's a privilege to be a Rebbe. It's a humbling thing to be a Rebbe. And you know, Chazal tells Ain Melech Baloam, there's no king without a nation. There's no such thing as a Rebbe without students. And when you show up, and when you're here. I want you to know that you've given me a tremendous gift this year, and I want to say thank you to you, because, first of all, it's always fun. It's always fun to come here. <laughs> but also, in a very real way, you, know, you dedicate yourself to imparting these messages, and there are people that want to. There's a chaver of mine just said to me recently, he said, what would it take to get into the world of Chinuch? And I described to him some of the obstacles that exist, and he's like, yeah, forget it. But he, he wants to. He just He's not going to. And he'd probably even be good at it. He just hasn't found his place. It's not obvious. You know, there are people that come to teach in places and nobody shows up to their classes. And it's hard. You know, you, know, you have those classes where there's only like three girls left in the class and now those three girls are suffering from the existential crisis of if I leave, do I wreck somebody's life? <laughs> <laughs> but somebody told me it's my year, so like I don't know what to do, right? It's, it's hard. It's a really hard thing. So thank you. You've... Uh, I hope that after I die in 120, they'll, they'll write two things on my tombstone. One, that I play sheish beish with my daughter and my son. And the other, I would hope that they would just write malamid, that he taught Torah. And I couldn't do that without you, so I want to express my akar satov. And uh, we should be to learn Torah together for many years to come. Amen.